Have you noticed a shift in the weather? It's a bit darker in here, isn't it? Just slightly. Uh, part of it was that we anticipated that it was going to be a lot hotter today, and uh, it wasn't. Um, and so it's the clouds, and uh, that's what causes the darkness inside here, just in case somebody wondered that we afflict something. So just FYI, um, we can't control the clouds. Uh, we have tried, but we failed miserably. I'm really glad you guys are here. I'm glad to see some familiar faces and some visitors as well, part of family as well, to see Eduardo and Sylvia here as well. It's a great time to see everybody together here, and uh, we see that you are here to be able to worship God, and we're in Galatians, which is a phenomenal passage of Scripture that you heard Kevin read so nicely for us, chapters 3 and 4. Just in case you hadn't read it or to refresh yourselves, that's why Kevin read that for us, so that we could immerse ourselves into Paul's writings. Now, I want to make sure you have a worship guide, because you will need this worship guide. There are questions inside here. If you're brand new today, there's something really important inside here as well that's, that's good for you. And if you are a regular, there's something great as well inside here. So make sure you've got a worship guide. If you haven't got one, put your hand up and uh, the team will make sure that you get a copy of this. There's a little form inside here. I mean, there's a quiz, obviously, about Galatians 3 and 4. For some of you who are really excited about taking quizzes, I don't know why, but I've had people say, that's really good. I, I need a quiz. Helps me focus. So, uh, you know, I hope that when you take the quiz, you don't look at the answers until you've actually, after you've taken the quiz, but that's a test of faith. Um, and then uh, there is a, a little section in the middle here uh, on the nominating committee, and I want you to fill that in and suggest names of who you should be on there. Uh, there's a smiley face in here because there is a little bit of a, a little joke inside here, and I just don't want anyone to be offended about that, but it, smiley means that it's funny. Um, and just in case you thought it was serious, it's funny, and so that's what smiley face is for inside there. But, do that, and you, when you're finished with this, you can place it inside our offering altars. Uh, there's at the back there, at the front here. You can also use a Connect card to stay connected to us, and you can put that inside the offering altars as well. So I encourage you to do that. We will be using the worship guide. We will we'll be making references to it. So we are in Galatians chapters 3 and 4. Last week, we hit chapters 1 and 2, and as you remember, maybe you watched a podcast or you saw it yourself and you were here as well, but you remember in Galatians 1 and 2, Paul is like, just no patience, just diving straight into it and saying, look, it's just so incredibly simple. You can't go back the old way, because if you go back the old way to the law, where you make the law become what God has called you to, then maybe you don't understand that salvation is just by Jesus Christ alone. And you're going backwards in your way, and I, I want you to remember this, and it's important, and he unpacks his authority and his position and why this is so important to him. Chapters three and four today we're going to look at is how you're saved. And then next week, we're going to look at how to live that ethical life. So we're going to get into the real pragmatics of it, the, the, the deep and difficult things of what it means to be ethically following God today. That will be next week's with chapters 4 and 5 and 6. And so here's the question. You're probably saying to yourself, oh, I don't know, Pastor, really? A whole sermon on salvation? I know I'm saved. Let me just check this. How many of you believe that you're saved? Just put your hand up. Saved? Some of you are like, I don't, know, I don't know. How many of you believe that you are saved tomorrow? Ooh, they're like, I don't know, man. I, there's something could happen tonight. I don't know. It's just, it's interesting, isn't it? We're, we're saved right now at this very moment at 10:14, but but tomorrow or 10:15, I don't know. Maybe maybe a refresher on salvation wouldn't be a bad thing after all, just to make sure that everybody's kind of settled inside this. It'd be the equivalent, in some ways, of saying to grandmothers. Um, I think, I think you should take a birthing class. That's what you say to grandmothers, right? 
Or it'd be the equivalent of saying to uh, somebody who's teaching, you know, doing his PhD in mathematics, I think you should take English 101. Or maybe somebody who is designing the future of cars and saying, I need you to work on a carburetor and, and understand how the fuel mixture goes inside there. You would say, those are not really relevant classes. Those are really not important refreshers. Unless, of course, as grandmothers, you realize that in the last 10,000 years, things have changed. Not the birth, but the support, the medicine, the methods, the locations, and so maybe a refresher would help you in the information that you pass on to people, to other women, and don't scare the life out of them. You know, I mean, just saying. Maybe if you're a PhD student in mathematics, you realize that an English 101 class wouldn't be a bad idea because I have to articulate what my mathematical theory is and put words to it and write it out. Maybe somebody understanding how to make cars run on electricity will say, well, the carburetor and the, the basic elements of how to mix the air and the fuel together, that, that science is important to remember when I'm making power take place with electricity as well. And so the refresher maybe doesn't actually hurt us that much. And I think that the refresher is actually really good when it comes to salvation because so much has changed in our world. I mean, if I asked you where it is in the Bible that you know that you're saved, some of you may go to Romans or to John or find a single verse, but the whole Bible, where is it inside there? If I asked you, when you ask God, am I forgiven? And God says that you're forgiven, why is it that you ask him again, am I forgiven? Why have you not accepted that forgiveness and moved on with your life in that kind of direction inside there? I mean, if you say to yourself, hey, I have found Jesus for myself, then let me ask you this. How many people in your life have you brought to a place where they could discover Jesus themselves? That's a question. And so maybe a refresher doesn't hurt us at all. Um, this week, in the elders' board on Tuesday night, I presented an idea towards the end of the board called Be One and Bring One. Be One and Bring One. You'll see it up on the screens as well. Be One, Bring One. Be One. We've got to be a follower of Jesus. And this is the challenge I was laying down to the elders. I was saying, we've got to be followers of Jesus. We've got to be engaged with the resources we have to bring our tithes and our offerings to the community. We do. And I just want to thank you for this year. It has been a phenomenal year of you guys given. I don't know if you realize this, we have pretty large budget at the church here with 300 something thousand dollars inside there. On top of that, this church helped to reduce the deficit at Vista Ridge School from the 100,000 down to zero on that particular thing. You guys did that. You made pledges for our new pastor, young adult pastor to come here who's gonna take over discipleship, Jessica, $43,000. You made pledges for another 30, $40,000 to help with scholarships so that kids, if they wanna to go to Vista Ridge, can do that. That's a lot of money you've been giving to help the mission of the local church, much more than the previous years. And I really do appreciate that. And I know that in the next, this month, May and June, by the end of June, when we get to our final budget crunch line there, we're gonna be looking at the budget and saying, what are we short of to finish this year off? And right now, we're short of $6,000. But if uh, every pledge is all there and pressure's on everybody, we may be short of 20 by the time June 30 comes by. So I'm appealing to you, not only being a follower of Christ and being one, but to be engaged in your giving. And if you can give a little bit more up to June 30, then please do to help us to make sure that we meet our budget and plan forward. You need to be engaged in your community. And I was saying this to the elders that we need to be engaged in our community. To be one is to be engaged in it. To bring one means that we need to bring one to Jesus. 
everybody needs to be able to bring one to Jesus. You need to bring yourself to Jesus and say, Jesus, I need you to save me. You need to bring your family to Jesus. You need to bring your community to Jesus. There are conversations you have all the time. And so I laid out this other challenge and that every elder should by next month report back and say, hey, I belong to a life group. Because in life groups, you're able to dialogue about faith. You come to church, you're blessed in worship. You go to Bible study class and you dialogue and you learn and you connect with each other. But on a life group, you get to take that to the next level up. Two of the elders, kind of smart Alex, not saying their names are Brent and Ryan, um, Two of the elders sitting opposite me, they, they started whispering and snickering to each other when I said the thing about life groups. I'm like, I'm being serious. <laughs> and they're like, they looked at each other and they said, we're gonna start a new life group. And I could hear their whisper. <laughs> the room's not that large. <laughs> and they're whispering and they said, we're gonna start a new life group. It's called New Dads. And I was like, that's great. That's great. I went and met a couple this week who wanted a new dad. And I said to him, hey, Brent and Ryan, I'm just letting you know, you've actually started a life group now, and this new dad, who's just a new dad, he's gonna join as well, so now you're three. Ah, you know, I don't know if you, I recommend you go back and watch the service today, and watch Brent's prayer. Because as I was listening to his prayer, uh, he prayed at one point inside there, and just listen to the sentence. The sentence was, and Lord, thank you for the mothers who, who just, you know, chase after those kids all day long, and you listen to his voice because it suddenly hit him in the prayer. That's gonna be me soon. <laughs> no, watch the prayer. I'm telling you, he doesn't even realize this. It was hitting him. He was like, oh no, Lord, I'm, pray for me too. You know, be with me as well. I, I saw it, man. I felt it all the way through. It's true. It's inside this. So we need to bring people and be one inside our life groups. We need to be one in our community. There are people who are visiting today for the very first time, and I'm glad you guys are here, and, and you know, connect with people. Invite them to lunch, see how it's going on, and be, make sure you connect with that. But you might say, ah, oh, this whole thing, I bring one, be one, that's not really my job description. That's more the elders and the pastors. They're, they're the elected spiritual leaders, they're the ones who take care of that. This week I received a, an email from Rocky Mountain Conference HR department. They wanted me to, to tweak the job description for David and Jessica, because they're gonna arrive May 22, and, uh, and so they wanna make sure that the job descriptions are the same. And I said, uh, no, their job descriptions, there's no tweaking. They are pastors, and the titles may change, but they are pastors, and there's something fundamental about all pastors doing this together. We all do the same. We have two things that pastors have to carry all the time. We carry the prophetic voice and the pastoral voice. So the prophetic voice is this, is where we have to take you to places you don't want to go. Yeah, that's why you get angry sometimes. You're like, no, and we're like, yes. That's the prophetic voice. The Bible encourages us as pastors to be prophetic in your life. We sometimes have to speak hard words into your life, difficult things that you don't want to talk about. And we have that prophetic calling to do that. The pastoral side of us is that we have to hold you through difficult times when you are like broken and you don't know where to go and you are groaning and grumbling as well, we have to hold you through both of those things and say there is gonna be a brighter day. God is with you. We have to be able to take you to a place where you can work this out. And church, honestly, Sabbath morning is a place for you to be able to, as we sang the song before here, is to be able to let the Lord just wash over you. 
Our fellowship lunches are places for you to be able to fellowship together and be together, which is happening next week, by the way, just in case you didn't remember that. Next week, I'm hoping you're all staying. Hey, FYI, when you come to lunch next week, bring a change of clothes or a change of shoes minimum. Yeah? You're like, why? Because it's going to be amazing. After lunch, all of us are going to hit 2,000 houses just outside here, and it's put a little card with a rubber band on everybody's door and welcomed them to the Sanitos Lectureship in two weeks' time. That's why you come to lunch next week as well. You're like, I'm earning my lunch now. Yes, yes, fellowship is important. So we create these spaces for you guys, prophetic and pastoral, and we do specialize, but together, all of us are supposed to be one. Which brings us to our very first question that we have today, our recalibrate question, and I need you to turn your guide so you have the question there as well. It's good for you to see it as well, and it's something you can talk about with your family or in your classes, um, and you can talk with your community or your life groups as well. Number one, what would make the, and the blank here is family, vocation, education, church gospel, what would make the family valuable? What would make vocation valuable? What would make education valuable? What would make church valuable? What would make the gospel valuable? And to understand what makes it valuable, what we often do is we will criticize something to work out how valuable it is. We will tear it about, and we will call it things like constructive criticism. Everybody loves constructive criticism. Because I said the word constructive before criticism, it's supposed to be good. So we use things like constructive criticism. We use accountability or insights. I have insights about this or an epiphany about this. Or we have support or wisdom and we have experience and we're constantly going forward all the time saying, this is what I think about stuff. I'm gonna do this experiment with you guys right now. In the middle, right where Danny and Jared are right now, and, and Brittany and Matthew are right now, you guys will have to decide which side you're going to be on, because the church is split right down here. On this side over here, I want you to turn to each other. I know it's difficult to use words, <laughs> to talk to your neighbor. You're like, I didn't expect you to be here, even though you traveled in the same car with me. But I want you to turn with the person next to you, and I want you to say something that is like a, a high this week, something that's like a compliment, something that's really good, that is good, that happened this week. Just turn to the person and do that. Before you do that, this side here, and you guys decide where you split up here and right here, you guys are going to say something that just went miserable this week. Just something that just like, ah, oh, this just like, this is no good. And it's just, it's... I just hated this, and, and be authentic about it. Don't make this up, you know? Maybe it was like your, your gravy was burnt. Whatever it is, just what went wrong this week, just turn to the person and say that. Let's go. All right, this side here, you're getting a little bit too comfortable. Let's, uh, let's slow down. That's good, that's good. All right. When you're thinking to yourself now, next time I come to church, which side would you prefer to sat on? 
you probably would have preferred to sit on this side, right? Would you agree? Because this is a downer group right now. I mean, this group here, oh my goodness, they all need therapy, they need to go see someone, they need to see a psychologist. I mean, we got a few in the church that could help you out, but I don't think we can handle the amount of negativity that just took place on this side here, right? But this side here, they're like, hey, it's great. I said something good, I felt lifted up. And this is the tension that we have. We have two words in the Bible, two great words in the Bible. One of them is called groan, and the other one's called grumble, all right? Groan and grumble. And here's the thing, groaning is good. In Exodus chapter 2, 23, when, when Moses talked about the, the children were groaning to God, they're saying, we're in slavery, God heard their voice. It's important to be able to groan all the time. Jesus himself, he, he groaned over the situation when he saw Lazarus and Mary and the whole death, he, he groaned in his entire body. Groaning is a good thing to take place. It's okay to be able to groan. The book of Lamentations, not often read at ceremonies of celebration, is all about groaning. And it's okay to groan. And if you groan, you're doing something good. God wants you to be able to groan. Now grumble, oh, grumble we do. We don't groan often, we grumble all the time. The children of Israel heard the prophetic voice from Moses, came across the river, arrived in the promised land, and then they started to grumble. Ah, oh, in Egypt, we had fish. Oh man, we had, we had good food and it was free. And Moses was like, free? No, you were slaves. And they grumble and they grumble and they grumble all the way through. And Paul himself, he goes in Philippians, he says this, look, it is not good for us to grumble. Not good for us to grumble. We can groan, but not grumble. Because you see, when you groan, you groan to the face of God. You groan, you groan about God. You don't groan about God, you groan with him and you're talking to him all the time. But the problem is, when we have a problem with somebody else, we don't groan to them, we grumble about them. So we don't resolve problems in our community because we grumble all the time. We got a complaint all the time. And God's saying, I don't want you to be grumbling. I want you to be groaning. I want you to be able to groan to God about this kind of stuff. And when we grumble, we attack each other. We break things down. We complain. We actually spiral into this, this abyss that just keeps them going down and down and down. But when you groan, you raise hope because you're saying, God, there is a solution. When you have a problem with somebody, you go groan to them and you have a problem with that person, you're saying, I value us. I value our relationship. I'm gonna go forward with this kind of stuff here. Imagine if your prayer life was filled with groaning instead of grumbling, right? You groan to God means that you say, God, I can't bear what's going on, but I need you because I know you're the solution. If you grumbled, you're like, ah, oh, God, I just hate everything that's going on. But when you're grown, you're like, God, I know you will have a solution for me. And God is calling us all the ways to do this. There's a couple of great uh, texts in the Bible. Now, I want you to turn to one of them, Psalms 100. I believe it is page uh, 343, but I wrote that down. I'm, if somebody could just check that and just correct me if it's not page 343. Psalm 100. Super Psalm, this one here. Is it? Page 343, great. Great example here of what God is calling us when he says that we are supposed to address the groaning and grumbling in our life by looking at hope inside here. And it says this in Psalm 100. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. And it goes on and on. It's beautiful, beautiful. If you read this same passage, 
in the Message Bible, listen to what he says. Eugene does this. On your feet now and applaud the little God. On your feet and clap to God. I mean, we clap for all sorts of other things, but he's saying, on your feet and clap to God. Bring a gift of laughter. Sing yourselves into his presence. We had breakfast this week. Pastor Eli and I had breakfast this week with somebody. And uh, that person said to us, you know, sometimes I come to church and I'm just not in a happy place, not in a good place. And then you guys sing. Oh. And before you know it, I'm singing too. Oh. And I didn't want to sing. I just wanted to be where I was, but I'm taken over by the Spirit, and the Spirit is confronting me and taking me to a place. That's why we sing in his presence. Eugene goes on, he says, know this, God is God, and God is God, and he made us. We didn't make him. We're his people. We're like tender sheep. We have the password, and the password of life is thank you. Gratitude. Gratitude destroys all the grumbling and takes you to the place where you know that you're no longer going to complain because we get drowned in our complaining. Now, there are times, I admit this, there are times when it's really heavy, when something horrific has happened in your life, when something difficult, and you're just stressed about it, and you know it's difficult to process. And God understands this. And he says, look, I, I get this. It says in Romans chapter 8, 22, and it's a great text, and because of time, we're not going to fly through all these texts, but he says, look, all of creation is groaning with you, and I, and I want to be able to protect you through all the groaning that's going on. When my son Jonah was young, um, he got a, a ruka on the bottom of his foot. And, uh, and so we took him to the doctor because it just, I don't know, just something that bad. It was just wasn't good. We weren't able to treat this Veruca. Took him to the doctor, and the doctor said, well, we've got to address that. And he laid him down. This doctor, by the way, was kind of like Dr. House. So there you go. Uh, so <laughs> Jonah lays down, and Jonah looks at me. He's a little boy. He looks at me and says, what's going on? I said, it's going to be fine. I want to protect you. I love you. I want to protect you. Doctor takes out a needle and jabs the sole of his foot. And I, I mean, and Jonah's face was groaning in pain. And he was looking at me saying, Daddy, how did you protect me? And I looked at him and said, oh, it's your mom's idea. <laughs> no, 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 I didn't say that. I didn't say that. I, said, <laughs> I was with him. I was with him. I did not say that. <laughs> I was with him. I understood the groaning of the pain because I, he jabbed him and then he cut it and cut it with a knife. I was like, and he was in pain and I was holding onto his little hands and all this. I'm saying, I, if I could trade, I would trade. That's what I would do. And God understands this and he says, look, pain is difficult. You groan sometimes in pain. Jesus himself on the cross says, Father, why have you forsaken me? He's groaning to God. He understands this. He says, look, I understand the value of this. And Paul says, look, the gospel... It's so precious. He's like Jonah to me. He's a son. He's just powerful. The gospel's valuable. It's important to us. He said, I can't imagine you having anything less. So when you read these passages and you're kind of upset about them, sometimes you've got to say to yourself, it's because Paul is groaning to God and groaning to these people saying, there's got to be a way to address this. Again, because of time, I'm going to fly through the stuff here, but in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Take a mental note of this, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, page 670 inside there. There's a great passage inside the, in there where Paul is saying, look, there was a time when there was this guy who was a thorn in my side, and, and I prayed to God and said, God, remove this thorn from my side. And I was like, man, I have done that prayer. Paul, I am with you. And you're thinking to yourself, who is he talking about? 
no you, it's okay. But he was, he was saying, God, take this thorn from my side. And God says to him, no, I'm not taking the thorn from your side. And Paul says, well, it trained me, it taught me to live through the pain, through the groaning, because the message was so valuable. It's so important inside here. Some have said that actually when Paul is talking about the thorn inside, it's probably the same one man who's irritating him in Galatians right now, in Galatia right now, and doing this thing. But there's two things you have to know about Paul. Two things that are hopefully you have the same conclusions as well, and you believe the same things. Number one, Paul understands what it is to be a sinful human being. He understands there is nobody here in this room that was born good. Even our cute little babies, as beautiful as they are, they have a propensity, a desire to do wrong. And God says, this is a message you need to understand, Paul. And Paul understands this. Therefore, all of us have fallen short from the glory of God, and he quotes this in Romans, in Romans chapter three. Number two is that there's nothing you can do to save yourself. To save yourself tomorrow, to save yourself today, there is nothing you can do because God saves you. That's how it works. You accept the gift, he is the one who saves you inside there. So the question number two inside your recalibrate question inside here is this, how does Paul bring this incredible passion he has, this incredible value he has for the gospel to the Galatians? And how would he bring it today? Well, you read in Galatians chapter three, verse one, and I want you to turn with me there, page 672. We're gonna fly through three, four real quick here, but it's pretty powerful stuff. He opens up with beautiful, beautiful, endearing terms. Uh, Galatians chapter three, verse one. This is what he says. Are you ready? Breathe in. Oh, foolish Galatians. <laughs> Who has bewitched you? Can you tell? He loves them. I know, I know. The word, the word foolish, by the way, is not, not the Greek word moron, moros, which is where we get moron from, that has no mental capacity to make decisions. It's this other Greek word that actually implies they were very smart, they were just not using their brains. You know, the way parents feel about their teenagers all the time. Right, Joshua? So uh, you just wish and you pray that they will use the capacity. He says, you, oh foolish people, you haven't used your stuff. Has someone bewitched you? Has somebody put a spell on you? Kind of like that 1970s uh, TV series, Bewitched. Anybody watch that? Oh, 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 okay, studio now. Uh, yeah, side note, just because you watched it. You know she never wiggled her nose? She didn't know how to wiggle her nose. She just moved her mouth and the camera moved the nose. Just FYI. Okay, so it's just like, it's like you've been bewitched. You've had a spell put on you. You're blind. You don't see something so basic, so simple that God is the one. And so he goes through this stuff. He says it's straightforward. Was it faith? Was it law? Was it the spirit? Or was it flesh? He says, is it circumcision, literally? Was that what saved you? Was it the law that saved you? Or was it the spirit? Do you remember when I met with you? He talks about them. He says, I sat down with you in chapter three, verse six. I mentioned Abraham. I told you about the promises from Genesis. I reminded you of your Exodus journey and all the beauty that's taking place inside here. You're still in exile. You still don't understand that the Messiah has come and it's not good enough. And they wouldn't accept Jesus, right? Because for them, the prophecy of Daniel chapter nine, the 490 years, that points, and we'll look at this in the fall, so be prepared for that, but in Daniel chapter nine, the 490 years points you specifically to the time 
that Jesus would die on the cross, specifically to his ministry. But when they thought of exile, they thought of, res- of the healing and the coming forth, not being a, a Messiah who came and just said, the kingdom of God is here. They said that the rulers were going to be removed and they would be restored. And because he wasn't, they were not satisfied with that. But Jesus came in the world and he saved them. Verses 15 and 18 down here as it continues through the story here. He says, then look, I want you to just catch this. And maybe you heard it when Kevin read the scripture. He says, he quoting Genesis, he says, you guys were not just uh, an offering, you were, you were offerings. There's, there's this beautiful, not just an offspring taking place here, but, but the offspring. He's not saying it's a plural of offsprings. There's one, and that one is the Messiah. Jesus the one who fulfills the promises here. So by the time you get to verse 19, the people are thinking to themselves, as Paul recognizes this, he says, well, you're probably thinking to yourself, why the law? Why the law? That's what it says in verse 19. Why the law? Why would I even have the law? You got it through Moses. He was an intermediary. He came and delivered this law to you. Why this? And many people, and maybe you've heard this as well, will look at the First Testament and will say, that was the period of the law. And then they look at the Second Testament. That is the period of grace, right? They imply that everybody lived by the law, and then Jesus came along, and poof, it was over here. Some people may even say that there's just a progressive nature to God, that God started off really small, kind of clouded there, and then as time goes on, he reveals more and more until you get over here, wow, powerful picture of God. But that's not how it works in the Bible. The Bible has these powerful stories where God just interjects into humanity, boom, he appears, something amazing happens, and then it goes quiet, boom, he appears, something amazing happens, and so God is constantly revealing himself Because he says, look, Abraham understood through faith that he was saved, not because of the law. Moses came along and said, you've forgotten some stuff. I'm going to teach you that. I'm going to bring you back, and everything's good inside there. And he takes them back to a place. The covenant has been the same all the way through. Don't let someone take you to this place where you can throw away half of the Bible. Your Bible is the whole Bible. Remember that Jesus himself on the road to Emmaus used scriptures, which was basically the first testament, to show that this is the Messiah and this is the truth. And we need to embrace that beautiful thing inside here. In chapter seven, in chapter four here, he continues through, and, and I think it's the crux of the whole of Galatians. He says, look, your partner's with us, and we are. Your partner's with us. The spirit is inside you. And this is how you know that the spirit of God is inside you. When you cry out, Abba, Father, you know that God is inside you. When you start to think yourself, I don't know if I know that God is real. I don't know if God really actually exists. I don't know whether I want to trust the Bible. It's because you're not allowing the Spirit into your heart. Paul understood this. When he talks about faith, he's talking about the spirit. And next week, we're going to talk about what spirit living in your life actually looks like and what that ethical life is. And God is saying, I need you to understand that this is essential to who you are. He says, keep this inside you. By the time you get to chapter 4, verse 20, there's a huge switch in the text. And he tells this one interesting verse. He says, I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I'm perplexed about you. It's our final question, our question number three for this morning is, how do we express tones of healing, right? How do we express tones of healing? Because Paul says, I I just, 
I don't know. I've tried so hard to tell you. Just, it's not sinking in. I wish you could hear my tone. I wish you could remember that I ate with you when I was sick. You looked after me. You held me. When I told you the story of Jesus Christ, when I told you of my experience, it was real. I wish you could hear what I mean in my tone because this letter doesn't cover it. In William Barclay says this, that in Jewish times and rabbis, when they looked at scripture, there were four ways they would look at scripture. They would say, number one, that you would interpret the meaning literally. Number two, you would say what was the suggested meaning. Number three, you would study it and find the intended meaning. Number four, is you would say there was a metaphor, there was an, uh, an allegorical meaning, meaning to this. Paul goes with number four right now and he uses the whole story of Hagar and Sarah. And he says, look, I'm going to just take the story and let me just break it apart in some other way. And let me just tell you this. You can be children of the slave or children of the promise. Children of the slave or children of the promise. Children of Hagar or children of Sarah. And God is saying, I saved you. You're my family and you're part of Sarah. And that's what he ends on. He wants you to remember this. My... Martin Segman is a psychologist, and um, he said that he was uh, one day in this hospital um, with a friend of his who was in a coma. And it was at nighttime, and he was sitting by the bed, and the janitor came by. And as the janitor came by, the janitor came in the room and put up a painting on the wall and put some new flowers in and, and started to move some furniture around. And, and Martin said, what are you doing? He said, well, when Mr. Jones wakes up, and he sees this painting, and he sees the fresh flowers, and he sees all these beautiful things around him, the warmth is gonna heal him, and he will know that somebody loves him. And that is my job as a janitor, is to make sure that I create a warm space for healing to take place. God has called us to be one and to bring one, no doubt about that at all. God has called us said, when you know that you're saved, that you've got to do something amazing, and we've got to heal each other. And today, part of the healing and part of the celebration is for all the great mothers that have existed, all those who have suffered, all those who are with us today. I want to show you this little video right now, and then I'm going to pray with you, and our team's going to lead us through the final song, and we'll close off today. So I'll turn your eyes to the screen for a second.
Heavenly Father. It's in Christ alone that we hold through all the pain that we go through in our lives. We think of mothers that have lost children and fathers as well. The loss of life. No matter what stage of life that was, it's still a loss. God, it's in your hands. We think of the privilege that we have to be parents, to actually have children. Whether we have adopted them like you adopt us, whether we have fostered them like you care for us when we're thinking through it, although we had them, Lord, we have a privilege. At times it's difficult and we may even groan or sometimes grumble. We ask God that you turn that in away from us. May our grumbling turn into groaning and may our praise be lifted up because we know that you will pull us through this. Whatever privilege we have, God, may we live that privilege with the gospel assurance that we are saved and so can someone else. May that be so valuable, so important that we never miss one moment, one conversation, one handshake, one moment to be able to share that this is the Jesus of my life. We ask this through your son's precious name.